The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Father, I pray that um, you would be honored in our time together. Lord, I I pray that um, for those of us involved in ministry to people, we know that uh, that can be a painful and hard endeavor at times. And we need your grace. Uh, We need your grace to deal with our own hurts and our own discouragement and our own struggle, even as we seek to help others who are struggling. Uh, So, Lord, would you meet us here? And I pray particularly for those that are... uh, in this talk today that are hurting, that you would minister to them, you would minister to us as you, by means of your Spirit, minister to us through the pages of Scripture. So will you uh, open our hearts, work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Let's see if you can relate to this experience. I was uh, a young pastor. I was just getting involved in ministry to people and counseling and uh, remember very vividly a counseling appointment. Uh, Things did not go well. And I had one of those drive, it was an evening appointment, so I'm driving home and I walked in the door and I told my wife, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. And that experience I've found has repeated itself a number of times throughout my pastoral ministry. And, and, and you, you probably know, because you're here, because you love Christ and you love ministry to people, that's why you're at IBCD, that if you're involved in ministry for very long with people, you will soon discover that it is a very painful process sometimes. Um, I remember uh, a few years ago, uh, a young lady, uh, my family loved this young lady. She was a dear friend of our family. Uh, She had gone through a number of hard things, difficult family relationships. And I remember getting the call that she had moved in with her girlfriend and had given in to a number of years of struggle with same-sex attraction. And she finally just jumped in and said, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing, this is my choice. And how unspeakably painful that was to hear that news and to see her depart from the ways of the Lord into her sin. I remember another time where a man had lost his marriage, uh, lots of adultery, lots of um, just horrific sin. And there he is in my office. I had one more chance to open the Word of God and show him that there was hope. There is hope in the gospel. There is hope in the Lord Jesus. Uh, If if we uh, conceal our sin, Scripture says we won't prosper, right? But if we confess or forsake it, there's mercy. There's hope. There's grace. there's There's no situation that is beyond the gospel. And unfolding that for him and helping him to see what what repentance and faith in Christ look like, the the start into this grace to know change and transformation and forgiveness. 
and how in that moment I became the enemy. And all of a sudden I became the target of anger and resentment and uh, his wrath. Have you been there? Um, And I'm calling this talk Addictions and the Discouraged Counselor because I've found that addictions are some of the cases that, that we as counselors tend to struggle with the most. And I think that's because addictions tend to be more complicated cases a lot. But, but also, think about these, these normal features of addiction ministry that can be sources of discouragement for us in counseling. Relapse. You have spent weeks, you have spent months, you have poured out your life in ministry to this person. And like the proverb says, like a dog that returns to its vomit, a person falls back in to the addiction. Accusations. Again, you, you have sacrificed, you have, you have spent hours, you have studied, you, you, you've gone out of your way both in the counseling meeting and, and, and outside of that, practical needs. You, you, you've mobilized your church to come around this person or this family and all of a sudden you become the problem in the mind of the counselee and there are accusations. How about this? When you discover after weeks or months that you've been lied to, that you've been deceived. And part of the reason the counseling wasn't progressing is that you didn't know the whole story. In fact, that's a good footnote. Uh, Whenever you feel like you're spinning your wheels in counseling, one of the questions you should always ask is, do I really have all the information? And often we don't. Breaking of trust or commitment, anger and hurtful words. When theft occurs, you got addiction issues, addictions cost money typically, people need money, and they are not, people are not below stealing from the people that are trying to help them, usually family and friends, but sometimes the church. Betrayal, weariness, anxiety. you had those nights where you sit on the pillow, the, you lay on the pillow, and you rehearse that session that went south over and over and over, and you're praying, Lord, I, I need to get some sleep. I can't, I can't get this out of my mind, and you're just replaying it. Why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that differently? Why didn't I go to this text? Every believer who is faithfully ministering the gospel to others will know seasons of sorrow and discouragement. So, so what I want to do uh, in, in preaching to my own heart and, and by implication to all of you is, is to look at a couple of texts of Scripture that we need as counselors when we're struggling with discouragement and, and turmoil because of counseling ministry. Now, the first text I'd like to take you to is Lamentations chapter 3. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 3. I just finished in my Bible reading plan, it's just kind of where the plan took me, just finished reading the book of Jeremiah. Uh, And I found it, I don't know how many times I've read it over the years, but I found it um, painfully difficult at points. 
to watch this man that loved his God so much and loved God's people so much and, and poured out his life in ministry. And, and you, you forget, God tells him at the beginning of his ministry, people aren't going to listen to you. You know, I, I'm, it's like getting a call. You know, you're, you're, you're a baseball player and you get a call from, from the team you've always wanted to play for. You come play for us, but I'm here to tell you, you're never going to win. Do you still go? I don't know about you, but, but Jeremiah is one of my heroes in Scripture. And, and you know, uh, the book of Lamentations, also written by the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentations has been called the, the, the funeral sermon for the city of, of Jerusalem. Now, and, and you recall during Jeremiah's ministry, um, the, the disciplinary action of the Lord to come in, the, the uh, Babylonians coming in and destroying, taking over the city of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, in processing that event and thinking about God's people going into captivity and his beloved city being destroyed, and, and, and the most painful part of that is seeing as a whole the corporate rejection of God's people against their God. And in the midst of that, if you know something of Jeremiah's biography, you know that this was a man who struggled with uh, many toils, dangers, and snares, right? This is a man who knew sorrow. He knew the trials and struggles of ministry. And he, he allows us inside his heart for a moment in Lamentations chapter 3 to, to see what, what are some of the things that he's struggling with. See if, uh, just by way of, of application, we can connect with some of the experiences that our friend Mr. Jeremiah was experiencing here. He says in, Jeremiah, or in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me... He has turned his hand repeatedly all day long. Now, now, who's Jeremiah talking to here? Who's he speaking to? He's talking to God. And he says, uh, Lord, um, you have made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me, he, God, has turned his hand. And, and he's taking his affliction. He's taking the, the things that have happened uh, because of God's disciplinary action on his people, the, the Babylonians coming in, destroying the nation, or the, the city of Jerusalem, taking people back into captivity. Jeremiah personalizes that. And he begins... He begins to feel like this. God is against me. It's, it's the exact same experience of Job. As you read through the book of Job, Job gets to the place where he says, Lord, it's like you're against me. Verse 4, he has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places He has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He, God, verse 7, has walled me in so that I can't go out. Jeremiah says, I feel trapped in this dark place. 
It's interesting, you, you counsel people that struggle with depression, they will use similar language. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm in this box, I can't get out. He, God, has made my chain heavy. Even, this is the prophet of God saying this, even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. You ever feel like that? I'm crying out to God. He's not answering me. He has blocked my ways. And with hewn stone, He has made my paths crooked. Meaning, every time I turn, there's a, there's a, a life speed bump. And I just keep tripping and stumbling as I, I try to be faithful to my God. Verse 10. God is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. Jeremiah says it's like God is this, this animal that's lying around the corner ready to pounce out and destroy me. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Here's a picture. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. He says, God, why are you shooting at me? I'm your prophet. I'm the one man still standing for you. Verse 14, I have become a laughing stock to all my people. They're mocking song all day long. You remember uh, the narrative of the book of Jeremiah talks about this. We see it again here. As Jeremiah was leaving his house each day, walking to the city center to proclaim the message of the Lord to the people, this message of repentance, as he's walking in from his house into the city, he would hear these, this singing. The, the, the people uh, on the streets singing. And as he listened a little closer, he, he listened and, and the lyrics were lyrics, a song that were mocking the prophet of God. People are making up songs to mock Jeremiah and singing them as he comes into the city. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. And I have forgotten happiness. Jeremiah literally says, I can't remember what it's like to be happy anymore. You know what this is? This is normal gospel ministry. This is the prophet of God. He feels like God is his enemy. He feels like God is against him. He feels like God is attacking him. He feels like God doesn't listen to him. He feels like the people of God are, have just totally rejected God and there's, there's no point in doing this anymore. What's the point, God? What's his conclusion? Verse 18, so I say, my strength has perished. I'm done. And so is my hope from the Lord. This is a man who knows the weariness and discouragement and depression and anxiety of normal gospel ministry. Verse 19, remember 
Do you hear him pleading with God? Lord, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. And then the hinge. A hinge, a turning point. Look for them in your Bible. Look for the hinges of Scripture. You see them all over the Psalms. And we see one here. Verse 20, Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. And we say, what just happened? In the moment of despair, he is in the dust. He has given up hope. He has forgotten happiness. You can see the prophet turning in the prophetic towel saying, I'm going to go be a, a, a wagon driver or something. I'm not doing this prophet thing anymore. And then something changes. Something uh, uh, radically changes inside of him. And it is precipitated by this little word, remember. I want to draw your attention to that word. Surely my soul remembers as I am bowed down within me. And he says, I recall, I remember something. And and in that moment of remembering, now he has hope. And the $100 question is, Mr. Jeremiah, what did you remember? What turned the course of this man's heart? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He remembers this. The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion. He is all I have. And that's enough. That's all I really need, he says. He remembers. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good. This is, it's like he's a radically different person. He, he says, it is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. He says, it is good for me, Lord, that I'm this, in this place of weakness, in this place of struggle, in this place of, of utter laying low. That I have no hope. I have nothing else but You. And you know what? That is good for me. He remembers. Because if I have the Lord, I have everything. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. And he goes on, if the Lord, uh, the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly. It's interesting, that little word willingly means he doesn't afflict from his heart. Literally what the Hebrew says. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion. He does not afflict willingly to crush them. That there's hope. There's a point to this. Jeremiah remembers there is a point to this discipline, to this struggle, to this affliction. So what can we learn about discouragement and ministry from our friend Jeremiah? 
I, I think the big idea, and there, there, we could spend hours on this text. There's so much here, but let's just, can we just summarize the big point by saying this? Uh, we need to remember who God is. We need to remember who God is. And that was the hinge. That was the turning point. To remember God's loving kindness. To remember His compassion. To remember His faithfulness. To remember who this God is. And that if we still have Him, we have everything. And that place of weakness where we see our utter insufficiency and it drives us to His ultimate and And comprehensive sufficiency is a very, very good place to be in gospel ministry. So, with me, would would you find in those moments of discouragement what our friend Jeremiah helps us with, that we need to draw near and remember and rehearse in our minds the character of God, who He is, what He's like, and if we have trusted in Christ, if we are in Him, who we are in Him in that situation. Okay, so there's some some encouragement from Jeremiah to remember who God is. Secondly, let's look at some encouragement from the Psalms. We're we're, we're trying to say on those moments of discouragement and, and struggle when we want to quit, those days when we say, biblical counseling is not for me anymore. What do we do? First, we we draw near to God. We remember who He is. That's what we learn from Lamentations. Secondly, we want to learn something from the Psalms. If you want to turn back, uh, turn with me to Psalm 46, please. Psalm 46. Where do we go when we're struggling in ministry? Where do we go when we're discouraged? Do you go to the Psalms? Yes. Um, there's something about the Psalms that are uniquely useful by God in Scripture to connect with us in the struggles of life. And, and you know, this, this is the hymn book of the nation of Israel. This is what they would sing. These are the things that God, as He inspired His Word, wanted His people repeating and singing and rehearsing over and over and over again. And what's interesting is, is the Psalms are full of theology, aren't they? This is your God. This is what He's like. This is what He will do if you turn to Him. This is His faithfulness. This is why you can trust Him. This is what you do in your moment of weakness. But the Psalms don't usually start there. The Psalms start in in the struggles and, and experiences and in the emotions of normal life. Anxiety, depression, discouragement, affliction. Uh, people, people after you. People trying to hurt you in some way. Loss. Broken relationships. And, and what I love, this is, in many of the Psalms, this is what the Psalms do. They connect your life experience or some life experience with theology. And, and, and the, many of the Psalms are designed to, first of all, connect with you in your emotion, in your experience, in your life struggle, whatever that is. It, the Psalm connects with that, and then, and then, it, and then it takes you somewhere. It's taking you from from that difficult experience and it's moving you toward your God. So when you read the Psalms, I I tell our people, look for the movement of the Psalm. Look for how the Psalm wants to take you from where you are to where God wants you to be. 
to a better place, to, to a place where you, you see him more clearly, where you're trusting him, where you're rehearsing those things about who he is. The movement of the psalm is so important. And, and, and that's what we see in, in Psalm 46. Although, interestingly enough, Psalm 46, the theology of the psalm is front-loaded. Usually the theology comes later on. In Psalm 46, the big idea is given right at the beginning. Listen to this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Um, the, that little phrase, very present, means that he is easily and readily accessible. He's always there. He's always with you. And, and we see here, God is our refuge and strength. We, we just, uh, our family just uh, actually... Uh, traveled to Florida. We had a big sort of family reunion. My wife's side of the family, my in-laws and my brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws and nephews and nieces. And we all congregated out to Florida in uh, the St. Augustine area. And uh, one of the things we, we saw out there was this old, old castle or fort. And uh, originally built by the Spanish back in the 19th century. And uh, no, before that, excuse me. Um, previous centuries of that even. And um, it's changed hands something like six or seven times. You know, the Brits had it and then the Americans had it. And, um, and, and walking around, you see that this, you know, we don't see a fortified city every day. So we're walking around. My kids are there. There's cannons. I mean, there, there's, uh, it, it's awesome, right? If you're, if you're a, a boy, this is, this is awesome because you have these big, huge cannons. And, and as we looked out into the harbor, I had this thought, what would my life be like if I lived in a time in history when my sole protection from the enemy was this structure. When the enemy was coming up, the pirates were coming in, or, or the Americans were coming, the Spanish, you know, whoever it was coming, and my only hope was to take refuge in that stronghold and hope that the stronghold was, was Strong enough to withstand the power of that enemy. It'd be a different time in history, wouldn't it? You know, and, and not just, you know, they're coming, but I mean, imagine you and your family retire for the evening and you're thinking, do the walls hold tonight? Right? Am I going to live through tonight? And your, your soul trust, your soul confidence, you had put everything, even your very life, on the hope that this stronghold would, would, would hold you and protect you. And in biblical times, that, that, that was part of the protection. In, in fact, uh, archaeologists have discovered the old city of David, where some of the walls of the old city of refuge, as they called it, um, it, it protection back in David's time. And, and so that becomes, that little word refuge or stronghold or strong tower becomes a wonderful metaphor for where you put your ultimate trust. And I think that's what we, what we learn in terms of encouragement from the Psalms, to, to seek refuge in God, first of all, to, to take refuge in Him. Psalm 118 says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Uh, David says in a psalm, my Lord is my rock, my fortress, my stronghold, my redeemer, my strong tower, my strength. And it's a way of saying, where have you placed your entire trust and hope for your well-being, for your protection, for your help? And, and you, know, you know what I find? 
in those moments of difficult ministry is that my confidence, my trust, my hope, even though I know the Sunday school answer, I know where that's supposed to be, in those moments of ministry discouragement, if I'm being honest with you, I have found that my hope, my trust, my confidence has slid over to something else. I mean, be honest with me. There are days you think, you know, I got this counseling thing figured out. You know, I went to the IBCD conference. I'm IBCD certified. I'm even ACBC certified. And in our pride, in that remaining sin, we can begin to put our hope in our skills or ability or, or giftedness or degrees or whatever it is in the ability to help people. That's a setup for discouragement. Um, we, we, can, we can begin to put our hope in, try this one on. We can begin to put our hope in how we perceive the counseling session went. You ever do that? You're going home, you're replaying the video, and there are some days, you know how this works, there are some days you're like, that was a great session. And the next day you walk in, the secretary says, oh, Mr. So-and-so isn't coming back. Oh, okay. And, and, and these, are, these are wonderful moments on those times where you feel like you just blew it. You weren't articulate. You fumbled around in the text. You were having trouble seeing what was going on. Your interaction with the people wasn't good. And, and it's, it's, that's, that's that drive home. I quit. I'm done. I'm going home. I'm telling the wife I'm done. I'm not doing this over again. And then God does something. He does something unexpected. He does something that has nothing to do with your ministry to that person. He does something in the heart of that counselee that you and I, on our best day, cannot manufacture in the heart of counselees. He transforms their life. He opens blind eyes. He brings conviction. He makes the, the, the light, the, the illumination of the text come alive. I'm getting a little too excited up here. All right, I'm preaching to you a bit. Um, we thank God for those moments. And, and that's what we see here is a reminder that part of indwelling sin, it, it's like when your car's out of alignment, your car being out of alignment is like indwelling sin. It just sort of... It drifts. It wants to go to the ditch of, of self-sufficiency or, or my giftedness or trusting in my perception, my evaluation of the session. And I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for excellence. We shouldn't continue to strive to be good biblical counselors, keep growing. What I'm saying is our ultimate hope and trust can never be in anything else except our refuge. Um, and the Psalms, if you've noticed this, the Psalms are, are full of reminders to put your refuge, put your hope, make God your strong tower, your strength, your rock. So let's remember that. On those, on those drives home, when you're ready to quit, ask yourself this question. Which tower of hope am I running to right now? What refuge am I really residing in right now? And I would confess to you that often on those, those times of discouragement, I'm in the wrong tower. 
Notice with me also, if you're in Psalm 46, just back up a couple pages to Psalm 42. There's a great insight here. A great insight. Um, I first uh, discovered this just in reading the Psalms, and, and then uh, uh, shortly after that was, was greatly helped by Martin Lloyd-Jones' book called Spiritual Depression. I hope many of you are familiar with that, have read that. It's a great resource from, uh, uh, from the good doctor, as he was called. Um, psalm 42, there's a, there's a feature of this psalm, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, probably originally one song, even though they're two separate psalms in our Bibles. Uh, we, we think that because the chorus is the same in both of those psalms. There's a feature of this psalm that is displayed that God put here because it is so, so essential when we're struggling, when we're discouraged, that we engage in this practice. Look with me at the chorus of this song. We see it first in verse 5 of Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. And then he repeats it again in, at the end of Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. And then that's how Psalm 43 ends also. What's the, what's the feature here? The feature is to see who is the psalmist talking to. He's talking to himself. Now, this is not a psychological disorder. This is normal, biblical, walking with God stuff. Lloyd-Jones makes this comment in his book that uh, you've no doubt heard before, but if you haven't, I want to read it one more time. This is Lloyd-Jones from Spiritual Depression. Have you not realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Now, that's not original to him. He, he says that in the context of unfolding Psalm 42, Psalm 43. And that's the feature. As the psalmist is struggling, my tears, verse 3, have been my food all day long while they say to me all day long, where is your God? He's struggling. He's in affliction. We, we read the context here and, and, and there, is, there is struggle. There is trial in his life. And, and, and hope comes when he stops listening to himself and he begins preaching to himself. He, he takes himself by the collar, as it were, and says, soul, you're going to listen to me now. Let me ask you a question. When you're discouraged over gospel ministry, perhaps in counseling, on that drive home, that long walk to the car, are you listening to yourself? Or are you talking to yourself about the truths of God and His Word? I appreciate one of the greatest insights I ever heard from Paul Tripp. He said this, quote, You are the biggest influence of you. Write it down. You are the biggest influence over you. And that's what we see here. What you say to yourself, what you rehearse in your mind, what you preach to yourself, what you tell yourself is so much the issue. 
Not just when you're struggling and all of that. that that's, why, that's why the New Testament is always saying, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put off those old ways of thinking. Replace them with, with righteous, sanctified, truth-enabled, gospel-saturated, Word of God-informed thinking. Think on things that are true. It's so much the issue, and, and I find that on those days when I'm struggling in ministry, it's because, again, I've steered off the road and I am listening to myself instead of preaching the Scripture, preaching what I know to be true to myself. It's interesting, um, the way this text ends... If we look back at the end of Psalm 43, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. There's an insight here. Why is it we know we're supposed to be trusting God? We know the things of God. We preach the things of God. Why can't we stay there? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to that, that, that's what it means to be redeemed, but still struggling with indwelling sin. And I think we, 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 gain, we gain something here. We gain something here by the insight of the psalmist when he says, hope in God. You know what's interesting? That's not the normal biblical word for hope. It's actually better translated, Wait. Wait on God. And of course, when we think of waiting on God, that doesn't mean we sit on the Christian counts whistling and uh, you know, eating spiritual potato chips and we just kind of passively sit around and do nothing. Waiting on God is what? Waiting on God means active, chronic, ongoing trust in Him. So we replace the internal lawyer that is accusing, that is demeaning, that is discouraging, that is, that is, you know, we're filling our minds with all the wrong things. We replace the internal lawyer with an internal preacher that says, trust in God and keep trusting in this God. That's the hope. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, the Puritan pastor, uh, the English Puritans, uh, uh, godly preachers and men of the 17th century, describes the state of the soul here that the psalmist is getting out. He calls it Christian contentment. Listen to this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That sweet, inward, gracious, gentle frame of spirit that, sweet, that, that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And on those moments, friends, when we are discouraged, when we're struggling, we're ready to throw in the spiritual towel, we need to fight for this thing that Mr. Burroughs calls Christian contentment and cry out to God until we freely submit to and, and delight in His wise, fatherly disposal in every condition and then we will have that quiet heart that is pictured in this psalm here. Uh, that's from, by the way, his book called the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is in print. 
Uh, he reminds us only God can quiet the turbulent soul. So, so the two things we learn from, from the Psalms, and there's so many things we can learn about, but two big themes are, number one, seek refuge in God, and then rehearse what He says. Preach to yourself. Don't, don't listen to fallen things. Preach the gospel. Preach biblical truth to yourself. Uh, interesting, um, in my study, I, I preached uh, years ago, verse by verse, through the book of Job. And it, it was the most glorious study I think I've ever done in ministry as a pastor. It was, it was surprising. It was hard. I mean, you're, you're translating Hebrew poetry that's old and it's narrative and you get lost. And It, it, it was the most wonderful st uh, study. And one of the things that, that, that I have this sort of geeky analytical part of me that, that wants to kind of make things work. And, and I saw this in the book of Job. And, and, and then as I studied the book of Psalms, I saw a very similar thing. So I want to put this up here for you. Uh, take refuge in him, rehearse what he says. Okay. Um, I call it the ark of spiritual health. Is this in your notes? Okay, just send me an email if you want this or take a picture of it here in a minute. But if you could, if you could graph what Job and the Psalms reveal are spiritual health or spiritual decline, what would that look like? Okay? So let me just show you how this works. Okay? And let me just explain this here. Okay? When we read Job, and, and particularly in the Psalms, we've seen some of this, there are things like this. Remembering. We just saw that in Lamentations, right? Telling. I will tell of your works. Uh, trusting. Make God your refuge. Praising. Th these practices point to the fact that I am exemplifying faith in God, and they show that I am on the right side of the arc of spiritual health. I'm, I am in, in a good place, moving in a good direction. And, and what we see, we just saw it in Psalm 43 illustrated, that when these things are happening, these sorts of results come. Contentment, hope, peace, joy, having a quiet heart. That, that, that's it, okay? And, and then conversely, when we're not where we should be, these are some of the things we might see. Forgetting. You see that in Lamentations 3, the first part of the chapter? Questioning. That's where, that's where Job goes. Questioning God. In fact, Job gets to the point where he's not just questioning God, he's accusing and contending. You, you know, the, the, the low point of the book of Job is when Job says this to God. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but this is what he says. He says, God, I want to bring you down here so I can take you to court and show you that you are wrong. This is the righteous man that Job 1 talks about? And he's wanting to take God to court because he thinks God is being unjust with these afflictions in his life? Now be honest. Have you ever questioned God? Have you got to the point where you say, God, you've got this wrong. This is not right. This is how it should be. And when, when, we, and when we live over here, we see that sliding of faith in self, right? I'm, it's pride and selfishness. I'm exalting myself. And you see these sort of accompanying emotions that go with this. So, again, th this, is, this is something that just sort of crystallized in my mind by, by picking up themes and watching progression in the book of Job uh, in particular and then the Psalms uh, in general. So... Um, but but that, that's helpful in counseling because at any point, you can ask yourself your question, the question, where am I? Am I seeing remembering? 
and trusting and praising and talking and telling and the emotions that, that show, remember emotion, emotions are just showing you what's going on inside you, right? So uh, the, these emotions that say things on the inside by God's grace are good. And then when you see those sinful emotions, those, those sinful things going on, you say, am I forgetting? Am I, not, am I contending? Am I accusing? Am I questioning? Um, so anyway, so that, that's, just, that's just for free to kind of think about a way to kind of evaluate spiritual health based on the Psalms. But, but you know what? And again, I, I'm confessing my sin to my brothers and sisters. When I'm discouraged, when I'm ready to throw in the towel, I would confess to you that I'm living on that side somewhere. I am. I don't want to admit it because I know it's wrong. But, but my, my, my trust has slid to a, a faith in self you know, we think about that. When, when, we start, when we start saying, no, it should have been like this, this should have been the result, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you don't know how to run the universe. I know better. And, and uh, uh, Dr. Welch was just talking about a rehearsal of the garden. Isn't that a replaying of the garden? I know better. So we take refuge in God on those days of discouragement. We rehearse what he says. Let's look at a third text in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's look at a New Testament text that can help us in our day of struggle and our day of discouragement. We need to remember who God is. We need to take refuge in God and rehearse what he says. Let's look at uh, another text in 2 Corinthians Chapter 11. Now, now, of course, as you're turning there, this is the text where Paul says, let me, let me remind you what I have gone through for the sake of the gospel. In verse 23, he, he picks this up. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. That means they threw rocks at him. You've got to clarify that in our day and age. Um, to try to kill him. Okay. Uh, uh, three times I was shipwrecked, and night and day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. And I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And, and I love this. Apart from all those external things, see, Paul lived in the real ministry world. He says there's all this stuff out there, but that's not where the real battle is. The real battle of ministry is always in here. He says there, there, is, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And, and that introduces this topic of boasting. And you remember, Paul had this amazing experience where he was caught up and he got to see something of the heavenly realm. But we, you know, in fact, he says, it was so amazing, I can't even talk about it. And God, in his kindness, did something to keep him, I'm in chapter 12, verse 7 now, from exalting Himself, Paul says, God did something to keep me from exalting myself because of this experience. He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. It's interesting. You see the, the sort of the three levels of suffering, right? He says, there's a thorn in the flesh. And of course, we don't know what that is. It could be all sorts of things, a person, an ailment. You know, it's, it's, it's vague, I think, by on purpose, right? So there's some, something going on. 
it's a messenger of Satan. So you got the, the sort of the worldly realm. Here's the affliction. There's this spiritual realm. Satan's involved. But who does Paul say gave it to him? God. It was given to me. Implication by God Himself. You see the you see the same three levels of, of suffering and affliction in Job, right? The Chaldeans and the Sabaeans, Satan who goes and asks permission, and yet no one ever says in the book of Job, the Chaldeans did it, the Chaldeans did it. No one ever says Satan does it. The whole conclusion of the book is God is sovereign. God is the one running the show here. It was given to me, this messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, Paul writes in verse 8, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me these amazing words, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What's he saying? What do you do when you're in affliction, you're in trial, and you ask God, please take this away? And God says no. What do you do? Here's what Paul learned from the Lord in that moment. Christ's power. The, we talk about in biblical counseling how important union with Christ is. And that's not just a biblical counseling thing. That's a Christian thing. That, that's, that's, that's the glory of what it means to be connected to Jesus. If we are somehow connected with Him, we have all of those divine resources that come to us because of our connection with the Lord Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, it is when we are weak and it's when God says no to taking away the affliction. It's when the counselee walks away. It's when the counselee accuses. It's when things don't go well. It's when you've discovered after months and weeks, maybe even years of gospel ministry, that a person utterly rejects the gospel. It is in those moments that we see the extent of the power of Christ. In us, we see the sufficiency of his grace. But that's not where the text ends. Look at this. He, Paul says, Well, if that's the way it is, <laughs> then I will boast about my weakness. And, and what, what, what does that mean practically? It doesn't mean that we go home saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm a failure. It means on that drive home, we say, Lord, I'm just a clay pot. I'm just a, 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 a creature. And my only hope, my only identity, the only, the only reason anything good comes is because of my connectedness to Christ. And on this night, I see how that connection is so precious and so necessary and, and, and is my only hope. And so I boast in the power of the Lord Jesus and His sufficient grace to work through this broken, insufficient, inadequate vessel. 
says, I boast about that. Why? So that, here's the purpose, the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, look at this, I am well content with weaknesses and insults, distresses, persecutions, with difficulties, key phrase, for Christ's sake. Why? Because it puts attention on Him. It puts the glory on Him. It shows the depth and length and height and breadth of His grace and His power and His sufficiency through my weakness. And it just may be that that difficult counseling situation is more about seeing the greatness and power and sufficiency of Jesus than in success in counseling. You know, one of the things, it's, it's all over the Bible, but I, I have to remind myself of this regularly. There's a bigger picture here. And so often, what I'm struggling with in the moment has very little to do with me. Uh, yes, all things work together for good, so there's always sanctification. Yes, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, God is doing something that is not primarily about me, it's about Him. And what Paul says is, you know what? Not only is that a great place to be, but I'm going to boast about that place. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to brag about the extent of the grace and power of my God and my Savior. And so we praise Him. So, so on your notes there, um, we encouragement from Jeremiah, encouragement from the Psalms, and encouragement from Paul to recognize God's redemptive purpose, to show us the extent of His grace, the sufficiency of His power, the magnitude of His ability to work on, guys, on our worst day of counseling. He is working. And again, that's not an excuse to be a, a, a half-hearted you know, bad counselor. We ought to work hard. We ought to strive. But, but it, is, it is so much the issue to see that it is about His work and Him. And God is working in that moment. And, and notice, um, Paul's focus is that Jesus would be seen. That His power would be seen. And we know that because often it's when we've blown it that Jesus shows up in power. We say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Um, let's look at some practical pursuits to battle discouragement. What are some, some, some very, very specific things we can do on a regular basis to help on those days of discouragement? Let me just share with you one brother to my brothers and sisters here, things that have helped me. Number one, we need to draw near to the man of sorrows. That this, we need to live out Hebrews 4, the, 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 the great sympathetic high priest who, who knows our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things as we are. He gets it. He experiences it. And this is the most amazing thing about our Savior. He's God. He's deity. But He's also 100% human. And we can go to Him and say, Lord, I feel like this. And He goes, I know what that's like. And he's the man of sorrows. He gets it. He understands. And, and we need to draw near to him, Hebrews 4, 16, to the great throne of grace so that we can find mercy and find grace to help in our day of need. Uh, number two, to read the Psalms. I've talked about that. Let the Scriptures counsel you. Put yourself under the Word of God and let them speak to you. So on those nights you go home and you can't sleep, turn on the reading lamp, open the Psalms and say, Lord, will you minister to me? Number three, be diligent to take your thoughts captive. 
Um, that's not just a, a text for counselees. That's a text for counselors. And we need to practice what we preach on those days. Because if you're like me, on those days of discouragement, on the days I'm struggling, I'm not taking my thoughts captive. I'm not interrogating them. That, that, remember that military language of 2 Corinthians 10? We take every thought captive. We interrogate them to the obedience of Christ. And we need to rein our thoughts in on those days. Because discouragement is often fed by letting our, our, our thoughts and our, our words just, just run amok. We need to rein, rein them in. Number four, minister out of a full well. I love Ezra. Ezra set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it himself. He applied it to his own heart. And then to teach the statutes and ordinance to Israel. Paul told Timothy, pay close attention first, where? To yourself, then to your teaching. So sometimes we're discouraged because we set ourselves up for it. We're not walking with the Lord in spiritual health, spiritual discipline. So make sure we're ministering out of a full well. Um, letter E, be a good counselee. I appreciate hearing Dr. Welch say this. Um, ask for help. Um, biblical counselors and pastors need the body of Christ too. And it's, it's not wrong. It's gloriously right to say, to go to a good friend, a, a trusted person in your church, a, a Sunday school leader, a, a, your, you know, your pastor, and say, I need help. Can I just talk? Um, well, uh, we, we understand this. Will you tell me things I already know? Will you remind me of things that I know, but I can't see right now in the fog of discouragement? So be a good counselee. Um, remember that faithfulness is really what defines success in ministry. Ask yourself this question. Who's the most successful prophet? Jonah, who preaches the most pathetic sermon of the Bible. <laughs> you better repent or else. And sees the greatest revival in biblical history. Or Jeremiah, who we talked about, who preached 40 years without one convert. In the eyes of God, who's the more faithful man? Well, according to Scripture, it is faithfulness that defines success in ministry. And I would highlight here a wonderful resource, Kent and Barbara Hughes, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. How many have read that? Okay. Man, if you're doing any sort of gospel ministry, you need to read the book. I, I won't blow the context, but it, it comes out of a, a real pastor and his wife and their story of discouragement. Submit your ways to God and pursue contentment in Him. I, I mentioned the Burroughs uh, quote, Christian contentment, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. When you lay your head on the pillow that night, you ask yourself this question, can I be content with what God is doing? Can I trust Him? Will I trust Him? Uh, letter H, recognize your role in the tapestry of God's sovereign plan. Uh, this is that text where Paul tells the Corinthians, some plant, some water. God causes the growth. And, and here's the thing to remember. You don't get to pick what phase in the ministry, in God's divine schematic that runs this whole thing. You don't get to pick your role. God picks that role. 
And so again, we submit to whatever, whatever he is willing to do in that. And finally, resolve to trust the power and the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to pierce as far as the division of both soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. And it's even able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And you know what? You can't do that on your best day of counseling. I can't do that on the best day of counseling. But the Word of God, wielded by the Spirit of God, does that level of heart work. And, and let us never, ever, ever forget that the Word of God is powerful and it never, ever returns void. And insofar as you have rightly divided the word of truth and ministered that truth, speaking the truth in love, it is never, ever, ever in vain in counseling ministry. Let's pray. Father, I pray in our discouragement and even for brothers and sisters here that may be particularly discouraged today, might we remember who you are to draw near to you, to rehearse these things in our mind and to remember always that you are at work. And that your word is powerful and it is never, ever, ever a vain enterprise when we open the scripture with somebody and minister out of love for that person and out of love for you. Lord, will you encourage our hearts? Will you work in us? Will you lift our head? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.